getting into the second chapter of the second epilogue, allow me to say at the top that the second chapter can be quite confusing. And this chapter in particular has tended to turn a number of readers off. In regards how various academics or scholars view history, it compares the approaches of biographers as well as historians who focus on a specific nation. And then it moves on to universalist or generalist historians who take on a more macro approach than just looking at the history of the English, for example. And then Tolstoy looks at how historians of arts and cultures approach gathering information and attributing reasons to how events occurred. First, Tolstoy takes on the biographers and historians of a particular nation. To them, the concept of power was most important with respect to the influence inherent in rulers and heroes of nations. So such academics, in Tolstoy's view, attribute great events to the will of someone like an Alexander the Great, a Napoleon, or an Emperor Alexander of Russia. Tolstoy complains of the subjectivity involved, where a biographer of Napoleon, for example, will be biased to extremely favor Napoleon's efforts or perhaps critique them. And the same process would occur with a biographer for Wellington or Horatio Nelson. You would get such disparate views by the subjective nature of the approach. There's no true and fair way to pin history down because ultimately it's a matter of viewpoint. Tolstoy believes that most have an agenda that they wish to push. If you're doing a history of the United States in modern times, do you want to take the approach that it is the land of opportunity that people are flocking into still today, rather than leaving? That it's a beacon or city on the hill for how other governments should run? Or do you want to take the view that it was built on some level of oppression and that it's rotten to the core because of history you wish to highlight? that relate to the slave trade and other discriminatory government efforts. Tolstoy points to one famous historian, Adolf Thiers, who proffered that Napoleon had an acumen and genius and a special type of virtue. Thiers had written a 10-volume history of the French Revolution and a 20-volume history of the French Empire. He was born in 1797, and though he was alive as a child, when Napoleon was active, he was more a contemporary of Tolstoy than Napoleon. His works brought a great sense of nationalism to France. He even spearheaded the effort to bring Napoleon's body back from St. Helena, so it would be buried in Paris. Tolstoy is saying that as a historian, there was no doubt an agenda he was pushing. He also mentions another French historian, Pierre Lanfray, who wrote a five-volume history of Napoleon based on Napoleon's correspondences that said Napoleon was being given too much credit and he was a pretty deceptive leader. Tolstoy says that neither historian ever got to the essence of getting an understanding of the force that really moves nations. Reading both works in effect cancel each other out and leave people in confusion more than giving them an understanding objectively as to why events played out as they did. Tolstoy then looks at universal historians, non-specialists, so to speak. They try to look to the multiplicity of forces at work in leading to events that moves nations. They tend to at least be superficially a bit more objective, and they look to more connections. They also try to look beyond the power of one man 
Tolstoy believes they still fall into the trap of placing too much emphasis on leaders and rulers. So they may conclude something like, Napoleon was the product of the excesses of the revolutions, that somebody had to come along to fulfill this role as a natural consequence. But some may find, in Tolstoy's view, that Napoleon's special ability was able to suppress the revolution in accord with the temper of the age. Tolstoy thinks the attribution of his special ability is still an overemphasis on one man. In short, he's basically saying that historical analysis involves a lot of perception and guesswork, and biases tend to lead historians wherever they want to go. What they get right in Tolstoy's view is that historical characters are products of their time and age, and that their power results from various forces. So in effect, some specialist historians that focus on Russia might attribute the restoration of the Bourbons to Emperor Alexander's rule, while most who lived through the era and aren't academics wouldn't give the emperor any such credit, but would focus on the masses that united on their own accord to repel a foreign invader. Tolstoy argues that while the generalist historians are looking for connections that lead to mass movements or events, their conclusions still seem to overemphasize the contributions of certain individuals. Academics will tend to focus on the handful of names of people in high positions that you've actually heard of. For example, Talleyrand, the famous diplomat, Chateaubriand, the politician, writer, philosopher, diplomat, who was a defender of the monarchy, or Lorenz von Stein, a German who studied French revolutionary thought. What was neglected by these admittedly great minds was the phenomena of millions of French citizens either supporting Napoleon or moving their support ultimately to somewhere else. Tolstoy really wants to get at why do people support one of these causes or another and how are they moved? That's what he tried to answer in the over 1,000, 1,200 pages of his novel. He really wants to grapple with the nature of power and essentially it's mystery. He's saying that the mystery is often within and can be answered by the soldier who answers the call to go to war as much as what the ruler decided in sending people to war. Tolstoy then moves on to a third class of historian, the historian of art or culture. This often includes people who came up with ideas that were said to lead to or create movements. How much power and influence did Thomas Paine's Common Sense have or Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto? Specific to his subject, Tolstoy asks, how much did the social contract by Rousseau lead to anything? Was it the cause or was it the product of an age? Tolstoy argues that the social contract was connected to so many other forces in that same age, its impact was in reality drowned. You really have to look for the atmosphere that surrounds it. And in that, you're going to be looking at the opinions and motivations and lives of nameless and faceless people. The social contract questioned the divine power of monarchs. It advocated taking the power from kings and placing it in the hands of people who could make their own decisions on how they wished to be governed. It also argued that power does not make right, and there is no duty to submit to oppression, even if it be someone who is considered, for many generations past, someone divinely appointed. Rousseau, for example, argued that all people who live in a society have both duties and obligations as to property, politics, and public discourse. Hence, the social contract. 
So while this doctrine of egalité, or equality, was being taught, did those lead to the mob violence? Or was it the people's general feelings and sentiment that led Rousseau and others to write what they did, to advocate and ultimately receive revolutionary change? Tolstoy, again, thought it is a great stretch to think that intellectual activity controls movements. He views it as one more thing in the basket to consider in relation to what really moves men. Tolstoy alludes to religious strife and the long-running conflict he was aware of over the previous hundred years with regard to large sections of Protestants fighting large sections of Catholics. He asks, how could ideas and doctrines that at their core teach the profession and sharing of brotherly love and eternal life segue into such violence over such a long period of time? It was not the people who came up with those doctrines who were responsible for anything. It was the people ready to fight. And that each group of people who are alive during the same time they have a level of connections and similarities of interest to each other. They tend to be affected by the times and the reactions to a given piece of literature or today a piece of media will inevitably be similar because they are ready to receive the message. He essentially doesn't think that ideas move men as much as men being ready to be moved moves men. Men want to move and do so in large groups simultaneously like one big organism. They are acting out what the intellectuals are thinking about and putting to paper. As to these historians of arts and culture, Tolstoy assigns them the sin of arrogance and pride for believing they have more influence than they have, or for academics attributing to some of their peers more influence than such so-called great minds actually had. Tolstoy was a voracious scripture reader, so this attribution of pride and arrogance is not unexpected. So, to sum it all up, the events of 1793 leading up to 1812 and the invasion of Russia, which Tolstoy wrote about, were much more than Napoleon decided it would be that way.